If it's your first time with us, we're so glad that you're uh, with us today. Um, you know, before we jump into John 7, I want to uh, just draw your attention to what's going on tonight here. We, tonight we have our night of prayer and worship. Um, and you know, these, these quarterly times of prayer and worship for us, we come and gather together as the body of Christ and sing and just beg God to move among us. Y'all, they have proved to be so so encouraging and, and, and faith-filling. Uh, and so if you haven't been to one, we want to encourage you guys to come tonight uh, and just be blessed by that because one of the things that we know to be true is that we are utterly dependent on the power of God. Like, w- without a doubt. Like we, like, we need the power of God to come and move among us. God has done so much already in the life of our church. Uh, we need God to move in power uh, w- ahead of us because Acts 5, 38 and 39, if, 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 if we try to do anything uh, in our own strength, uh, if, if, if it's from man, it will fail. But if it's from uh, God, it can't be stopped. And so we come together and regularly pray and plead to God to move among us. Um, and so come, you come tonight at 530. It'll be right here. Uh, we'll be talking more about that as well. Uh, and so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to John chapter 7. And one of the things uh, that we'll see in John 7, um, just that I want to talk about that is just pervasive, it's everywhere, uh, it's doubt and faithlessness. It's unbelief and faithlessness. You know, unbelief and faithlessness, it can be detrimental for us. At first, in an eternal way, for those who uh, do not put their faith in Jesus for salvation, it's, it's detrimental in light of eternity, but also... For those who do have saving faith, I think we can all agree that at times we all experience seasons of unbelief and faithlessness. We experience doubt. Uh, we, go through, we all go through seasons of maybe questioning God, maybe thinking, why did this happen? Or why is this happening this way? Or why can't I have fill in the blank? Why, 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 why? Maybe leading to anger or resentment or doubt or anxiety or faithlessness and unbelief. And on the flip side of unbelief and faithlessness is belief and faith. There is a confident trust. And I I think we all know that having confidence uh, in just about anything is extremely helpful. I mean, in sports, as soon as a player loses confidence and starts questioning himself or herself, uh, their performance will start to suffer. Lacking confidence at work or in relationships or in playing an instrument or completing a task, it causes your production or your relationship to suffer. Um, Lacking confidence in uh, a leader uh, or trust in a leader or someone you're following like a coach or a teacher or a parent or a boss or a pastor or a counselor, it makes it really hard to follow their lead or counsel. Um, Stephen Covey's son, uh, Stephen M. R. Covey, (laughs) uh, wrote a best-selling book. Leader, business and leadership book that's on my reading list um, for this year called The Speed of Trust. Getting at this idea that if trust is missing in the economy or in a business or a product or a person, the results will suffer. And I think we all get this. Trust and confidence are essential to our everyday lives. Uh, maybe you've heard it said that trust is built slowly, but it's also taken away very quickly. It's lost very quickly. And you know what? Jesus knows this. Jesus knows that the same thing is true with following him, that trust is essential. And he knows that we must trust him for who he is and not what we want him to be. And in John chapter 7, we see a turning point in Jesus' ministry. Just think about this. Up to this point in John, 
We've seen Jesus turn water to wine, clear out the temple, uh, turning over tables. He spoke with a religious leader named Nicodemus. He, set, uh, he met the woman of Samaria. He's healed a young boy and also a paralyzed man. And in the past two weeks in John 6, we saw two more miracles with Jesus feeding 5,000 people and walking on water. Uh, and just like you'd think would be the case, uh, as we saw in John 6, 15, after he fed 5,000 people, they were, to re- they were ready to come and take him by force, and they were excited to crown him as king. And, and at this point in the book of John, it seemed like Jesus was at the top of his game. I mean, he just fed 5,000 people with a little boy's lunch, and then he walked on water. I mean, it seems, uh, if you ask me, like a good day of ministry, a crowd of 5,000 people ready to follow Jesus and do whatever he says. I mean, it seems like a success, like a win. But like I said before, this is a turning point in Jesus's ministry because at this point in the book of John, we start to see that Jesus didn't come to wear a crown of rubies. No, he came to wear a crown of thorns. The large crowd wanted to have, a, have, uh, have him... Uh, They wanted him to have a crown of rubies, but by the end of the book of John, we'll see the crowds dwindle down and weeded out with only the few that accept Jesus as taking the crown of thorns, which seems like a major anti-growth strategy. (laughs) Jesus will go from 5,000 people who love all the miracles, ready to crown him as king, and he will eventually go down to about 12 who will follow him as the suffering servant that he came to be. But Jesus did that to establish sustainable faith that would withstand hardship and persecution that would then take this good news all over the world, sparking a global movement around the world. Because Jesus knows that in this world there will be trouble and they need faith that will sustain them through it. I mean, just think about this, okay? Uh, Jesus' plan to reach the world was to gather the crowds and then dwindle them down and weed them out, to then pour into the faithful few to establish a sustaining faith that would then reach the whole world uh, that is searching for hope in their hardship. And we'll see today why Jesus uh, does this, because again, the crowd didn't want Jesus for who he was. Uh, No, they wanted him to be their mighty king, promoting their political power showing that they didn't trust, uh, they didn't trust Jesus to be uh, their suffering savior that would take away their sin. No, they trusted him for only what they wanted him to be. They said they believed and wanted to follow him, but Jesus, as we'll see, is showing them their unbelief. Uh, Jesus is starting to take off the mask and he's revealing their faithlessness. Uh, And as Pastor Sinclair Ferguson said about John 7, he said, uh, Jesus is bringing out the worst in these people. I mean, how encouraging is this? I mean, we would think Jesus would come to bring out the best in people, but he doesn't do that here. No, he's bringing out the worst in them. And why, is he, why does he bring out the worst in them? He does this so that he can eventually put his best back in them. And like we already said, at this point in the book of John, Jesus is not making his following bigger, but actually he's making it much smaller, uh, but also stronger. Because Jesus knows that his followers need real and lasting faith. They need enduring and sustaining faith and not some sort of cotton candy faith. Because Jesus knows that real and lasting faith is a suffering faith. It's hope in the midst of suffering. Uh, In many ways, a call to real faith is a call to suffering. Now, uh, I'm not saying we should go around looking, uh, looking to suffer. That's just silly. 
But without a doubt, part of being in this world, it includes suffering, which also comes with following Jesus. And as we'll see in this next portion of John, this is the road to the cross, which is what we're going to name this part of our John series that will lead us to Easter, the road to the cross. Yes, we're still going to ask the question, what do you believe? Uh, That's the entire purpose of John. But as we make our way to the cross this spring, we're going to start to see that true belief in Jesus that gives full life comes by, as we saw last week, it comes by feasting on Jesus. There's so many things that we want to feast on when our hunger shows up in our trouble. But Jesus is calling us to feast on him. Because only by depending on Jesus and feasting on Jesus will our faith last and endure in the midst of trial and suffering and pain and hardship. You know, a cotton candy faith will do exactly what cotton candy does. As soon as it touches your mouth or your hand, what does it do? It just kind of melts and shrivels. It just kind of evaporates. It makes a big old mess. It sticks to your face and your hands, maybe your clothes. Um, or, Or if you're like me, maybe it gets stuck in your beard and it won't come out. It's just like a mess. It's a big old mess. You know, cotton candy faith will wither and shrivel and melt and evaporate in the face of hardship and trouble. And that's not what God wants for us. God wants us to have lasting and enduring faith. And so because of that, he often shows us our areas of doubt and unbelief so that we can, he can then put greater faith back in us. And at the end of John 6 and into John 7, Jesus is beginning to kind of pull the legs out from underneath them and show them their unbelief. Um, and we'll get into this more, but I don't think it's a coincidence that Jesus' brother, James, later starts off his New Testament letter saying uh, in James 1, 2, and 3, count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Jesus wanted them to have this enduring faith and not a withering cotton candy faith, which leads us to our main idea. Saving faith is sustaining faith. Saving faith is sustaining faith. But, uh, that's where we're going, but we're going to get there in a roundabout way. Um, we're going to be primarily in the first half of John 7, seeing three different illustrations of faithlessness, with Jesus highlighting their unbelief in three different groups as he's trying to weed out the crowd and, and also to strengthen uh, those who will eventually be the faithful few. Uh, and as you, we look at each group, we're going to see three different symptoms of their faithlessness. And in each of these groups, I wouldn't be surprised if many of us found some of these symptoms in our own lives. And so today we're going to take a loving scalpel, seeing some of the results of what happens to us when we lack faith and dip our toe into unbelief. Because here's the the deal. Doubt and unbelief, it will come. And sometimes we see it, but sometimes, uh, oftentimes we don't. Uh, Y'all, this is a hard one for us today. But it's for our good. So again, this is a, see this as a loving scalpel pointing out our faithlessness so we can see it and work on it and it be removed so God can heal us and grow us and make us stronger in the faith. But before we get into John 7, I want to give us a little bit of a running start from the end of John 6. Um, so let's think about John 6 with these two miracles Uh, showing Jesus as the bread of life that we saw in John 6 by feeding 5,000 people, and then also the fear of the disciples uh, just coming up in the midst of a storm, showing their fear and doubt, and then Jesus walks on water uh, and says, it is I, do not be afraid. And then after that, he comes in and teaches them in depth the importance of feasting on the Lord for sustaining life, which we saw last week in John 6. 
Uh, But let's look at the end of John 6 after Jesus tells them they're to feast on him for true life. Look at John 6, verse 60 to see what it says. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? So Jesus just told them that he is their source of life. And they're like, "Uh, this is too hard. Uh, And they're filled with doubt and unbelief. And Jesus knows this. He knows that many of them at this moment have a cotton candy withering faith. And he doesn't want to leave them there. He wants to strengthen them. But in order for that to happen, like we've mentioned, he needs to bring out a loving scalpel, pointing out their unbelief. Again, they thought they believed, but Jesus knew differently. Look down at John 6, 64 to 66. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So just like that, uh, those who were once following him started to walk away and his followers are starting to dwindle down. They simply just walked away from Jesus when Jesus challenged their faith. But again, Jesus did this to distinguish between true sustaining faith and a fake faith. And I wanted to point all this out before we got into John 7 because I I think it sets the scene really well. And as I said we would in John 7, we're going to see three different examples of groups of people who do not have true faith. We do know that some of them will be sustained in spite of their doubt and unbelief, like Jesus' brothers, uh, but many will not. Uh, And just as a note, Pastor Sinclair Ferguson was really helpful for me in this this week and drawing my attention to these three pictures unbelief. And so kind of using his outline today in John 7, we'll see, number one, the faithlessness of Jesus' brothers, the faithlessness of the crowd, and then number three, the faithlessness of the leaders. The brothers, the crowd, and the leaders. And in each one, like I've said, we'll see different symptoms that they show that point to their unbelief. Uh, And again, I wouldn't be surprised if maybe we can relate with some of these. I know I can. And if they convict us or reveal something to us, uh, take this as a good indicator of where we may need to dig deeper and deepen our faith. Because again, God often uses hardship and pain and struggle and discomfort to deepen our faith and to grow our dependence on him, showing us where we need Jesus to sustain us. Again, it's not if these things happen, it's when they happen. And will we go to our, our true source of dependence in Jesus or will we run and flee and reject Jesus altogether? So let's go ahead and get uh, into John 7. Look at the first nine verses with me. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, so his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. So I want to to explain a few things about the setting before we we jump into the brothers, because I think this will help us. Um, Jesus, he's in Galilee, where he spent most of his time uh, so far. Here he's turned water to wine. He's fed 5,000 people. He's walked on water, and he's healed a young boy. Uh, So maybe it's fair to say many liked him in Galilee at this point. 
But over in Judea uh, is where Jerusalem was, where all the religious leaders were, and where the temple was. And he tended to go up there and just kind of poke the bear a little bit and cause all sorts of commotion. You know, if you remember, uh, Jesus went up into the temple during the Passover feast. He poked the bear. He kind of cleared it out. He turned over the tables, and in three days, he said he would destroy it. Um, just Let's just say it didn't make him popular, okay? And then another time, during the Feast of Jews, he, he healed a man on the Sabbath, which again poked the bears and caused another uproar. Uh, we know, and Jesus knows, they wanted to kill him here in Judea. Well, in John 7, we see that there was another festival coming up in Judea, which I guess means it's time for him to go up and poke the bear again. But this time, it's the Feast of Booths, which for Jews is a reason to go up, was a reason to go up to Jerusalem. And Jesus knows that if he goes there, uh, it likely won't make the religious leaders happy. Uh, and he says to his brothers, y'all go on ahead. Um, it's not time for me to go yet. Now in verse 8, maybe you notice Jesus said, I'm not going. But then there's this footnote that indicates it says it can be translated not yet, meaning he's just not going with them because we'll see that he'll end up going later by himself. Another thing I want to point out um, is that all this is happening during the Feast of Booths. And me personally, um, I had to do some digging on the Feast of Booths to see what this was all about. And I thought it seemed like a pretty cool gig. Um, it's basically a big camping party in Jerusalem. Um, everybody goes up to Jerusalem and puts up tents all over the city, and they remember their time in the wilderness back from the book of Exodus, remembering how God provided bread from heaven, sustaining them in the wilderness, uh, which Jesus talked about back in John 6. And so in many ways, the story of the Exodus is on their minds, uh, which we'll see more next week. And so Jesus encourages his brothers to go up to Jerusalem and celebrate, uh, but they want Jesus to come with him. Because in their minds, they think this is a great time to go and show all of his cool tricks to the world. Everybody will be there thinking like, this is your time to shine, Jesus. Like maybe go there to go do a few miracles, uh, feed a bunch of people, heal a few people, maybe do that wine thing again. It'll be great. They'll love you there. But look what it says. Uh, look what it says in verses three and four. We're going to read it again. So, so his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Jesus' brothers, they want him to go and show the world all of his works, his miracles, all the cool things he's done, saying, don't keep it a secret. Show all these blessings to the world, uh, which doesn't seem like a bad idea. But then this next sentence, verse 5, it's a little jarring, I think. It says, for not even his brothers believed in him. That's not what I was expecting to see from his brothers. And they spent all this time with him throughout his life. But clearly they're missing something. Look down at verses 6 to 8. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. So something uh, is missing here with the brothers. Jesus knows that the world doesn't like him because he's like a mirror to the world, showing them they're evil. But the, the brothers see his miracles that they think the world will love. But Jesus knows he didn't come to show the world his miracles. No, he, he came to the world to be a light into the darkness. He came to deal with sin and evil in the world, not merely to do the miracles. But the brothers at this point, they didn't get it. 
They wanted him to wear a crown of rubies and be their political hero and to possibly make their life easier and maybe more comfortable and maybe less painful. But again, Jesus didn't come to wear a crown of rubies. No, he came to wear a crown of thorns and deal with the greater problem of sin in the world. Showing us, number one, the faithlessness of Jesus' brothers. Jesus' brothers wanted a self-promoting Savior that brought miracles and blessings and ease and comfort. They didn't yet want a self-denying Savior that would use his own death and suffering to deal with their sin to then fill back in that void with himself. Jesus' brothers wanted the gifts and blessings of Jesus, but they did not yet truly believe in what Jesus came to be. New City Church, Jesus came to remove the blinders of our sin and take away the penalty of our sin so we can fully see and experience his love. Jesus came to lavish us with his love that our sin keeps us from seeing and experiencing. But what makes this so hard is that the true love of God is fully known through a bloody cross and a crown of thorns and not through his miracles and blessings and a crown of rubies which for us here today, I think touches pretty close, uh, close to home for many of us. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, I know that it's easy to desire the blessings of Jesus more than Jesus himself, which is our first symptom of unbelief. Desiring the blessings of Jesus more than Jesus himself. Now, we may never say that, but I think if we're honest with ourselves, this is way more true than we may admit. I mean, let's just consider our prayers the things we often pray for. God, help me get a good grade on this test. God, help make this situation better. Jesus, you, uh, can you do this thing for me? Jesus, can you just give me this or that or remove this or that? And listen, these are not bad things to pray for. We should bring all things to God. God loves to bless his children. He absolutely loves it. But if we're honest... We often treat Jesus more like a miracle-working genie than the intimate, loving, sovereign king who, come to, who came to sustain our life with himself. And on the flip side, how often, just to check, just to see, how often do we pray, God, I want more of you. God, I long for you. Jesus, let me be satisfied with you alone. Nothing else but you alone. Where are you today with this? Are you longing for the gifts and blessings and miracles of Jesus more than Jesus himself? I mean, let's just think about someone uh, giving a gift to you uh, or you maybe to a friend or a spouse or a relative, and they absolutely love the gift and they're so thankful for the gift and they always express their appreciation for the gift, but yet that person never stops to appreciate you for you. Like they love you because you give them gifts, but... When, they stop giving, uh, when you stop giving them gifts, uh, maybe they get mad at you. They no longer want it, and they no longer want anything to do with you. We'd have to say that person didn't really love you for you. And, at this, uh, and this is what Jesus is pointing out to his brothers. I think if we're honest with ourselves, we often want Jesus. We want the Jesus that turns water to wine, heals the sick, and feeds the hungry, and not the Jesus that comes into our lives with a loving, painful scalpel rooting out our unbelief. But may we remember God does both in different seasons because he loves us. He brings a scalpel into our lives to shine a light on our unbelief to root it out so he can put back in us the best of himself. 
It's often painful, but it's love. And in the process, he's growing and deepening us. New City Church, Jesus himself is what we need. And Jesus blesses and gives, and Jesus also takes away. Again, our greatest gift is Jesus, not the gifts of Jesus. True saving faith is sustaining faith, and sustaining faith is faith that comes with a loving and painful scalpel, not merely just his blessings. So that said, let's look at the next few verses to see the unbelief of the next group. Look starting in verse 10. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for the fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. So Jesus went up to the feast privately, not with his brothers. And the Jews, it says, were looking for him, expecting Jesus to be there. And notice verse 12. It says there was much muttering about him. They were whispering about him. They were speaking quietly and privately about him. Some of, uh, some of the people said, it says he said it was a good man. Others said he was leading people astray. You know, in verse 13 says, Yet for the fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about him. Showing us, number two, the faithlessness of the crowd. And we need to ask, what did their faithlessness look like? Verse 12 shows us two different ways. Uh, one seems obvious. They thought Jesus was leading people astray. They thought he was a deceiver. Uh, and these people didn't have any belief at all uh, that Jesus was the Son of God. That one seems a little bit more obvious, uh, like more obvious unbelief. But the second way was a little bit more subtle uh, that I want to focus on. It says, some thought he was a good man, it says in verse 12. But yet they stayed private about it. They weren't public and open about Jesus. There was a fear to speak about Jesus and to be associated with Jesus. They thought Jesus was a good man, but they didn't think he was great enough to risk their life or reputation over. It wasn't a sustaining faith. Which shows and reveals their unbelief, reminding us that real faith is a public faith. It's a proclaiming faith. Real faith shouts it on the rooftops. It doesn't merely whisper behind closed doors. It proclaims to the world. The crowd's faithlessness was expressed in remaining quiet. They didn't want to make it public. They didn't want to cause commotion. They were keeping what they knew about Jesus to themselves, which is a symptom of unbelief number two remaining private about our faith. This makes sense for the person who's not a Christian, but for those who are Christians, uh, this one stings a bit more. If we're not filled with faith for Jesus, we're less likely to speak openly about him. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not saying we're not Christians if we don't evangelize the lost, because we know that salvation comes in believing the gospel only. Believing that Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead, and through it our sins are forgiven. Again, salvation comes through simply belief, not believing and also doing evangelism. But what I am saying is that those who have a sustaining and a deep, depending faith will share it with others. Being quiet about our faith is a symptom of unbelief in our life. Maybe we could say it this way, a healthy Christian is a proclaiming Christian. There's no doubt about it. 
Proclaiming Jesus to the world, to our friends, family, coworkers, neighbors, and others incites fear because the world doesn't like Jesus. And telling the world about Jesus, who they may not like, requires a deep, abiding, sustaining faith that feasts on Jesus, that finds their satisfaction in Jesus alone and not the world or people. And you know what's interesting? Both with the brothers and the crowds, they were both deeply influenced by people. Jesus' brothers were driven by wanting people to see Jesus' blessings and miracles, uh, and then by association, maybe being more liked by the, by the world. And the crowd didn't want to be rejected by the world. Uh, and in both instances, their views of Jesus was being sustained by the world and human approval and not Jesus himself. New City Church, let me ask, who are we afraid to share our faith with? Who are we hesitant to share with that's uh, what's changed your life? What neighbor or friend or coworker or family member uh, do you desire to share with, but you're not? We all have these people in our life. For whatever reason, we're more hesitant, likely because of some sort of fear. Maybe it's because you've never told them, or maybe it's because you told them like a hundred times and they think you're crazy. But let me remind all, all of us, that the gospel seems foolish until the Holy Spirit opens up blind's eyes and then it's no longer foolish, but rather it then becomes a healing balm. What do you, who do you need to invite to church? Or who do you need to grab coffee with and share your story with and talk to about Jesus? Y'all, unbelief often results in a quiet fear where faith results in bold proclamation. A faith that proclaims publicly in light of opposition is evidence of a sustaining faith. Again, Jesus is our source of life. Jesus is what sustains us, not the approval of people. Let's keep moving and look at verses 14 to 26 to get to our last expression of faithlessness. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is this that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Okay, there's a lot going on here. So Jesus, he went up to Jerusalem with all the tents going all around the city, uh, and he walks into the temple and he begins teaching. Jesus didn't perform a miracle here uh, that would wow the crowd like his brothers wanted him to know, do. No, he simply just taught them. Uh, and they were amazed by his teaching and they wondered how he learned it without studying. And Jesus simply says his teaching is from God who sent him. And in verse 17, he puts them in their place uh, by pointing out that if they knew God, they would know that his teaching was from God. And then the last several verses, he points out an exception they made with the law and the Sabbath and circumcision while showing their inconsistencies with how they handled him when he healed on the Sabbath back in chapter 5, leading us to our last illustration of faithlessness. Number three, the faithlessness of the leaders. 
So we know that the religious leaders wanted to kill Jesus, but the crowd was wondering who wanted to kill him. But Jesus knew it was the religious leaders, uh, which is ironic because in the law of Moses, it tells them do not murder, uh, but yet they wanted to kill Jesus. And the crowd thought he had a demon in him because he, he said such a bizarre thing, but yet they wanted to kill him. So what was the problem? They didn't want to kill Jesus just to kill him. So why did they want to kill him? Well, because they knew that they would have to submit to him in his teachings, and they didn't want to. Showing us our last symptom of unbelief, and it's not submitting to God's instruction. Jesus knew they knew God's word, and he also knew that they were using their position as a means for authority. But they resented and they were angered by what Jesus said because if he, what he said was true, it would mean they had to submit to him and relinquish their authority, which I think we can all agree is an easy thing for each of us to fall into. God instructs us to do something, to live a specific way, to deny ourselves, to walk in obedience in different areas, to love people, to sacrifice, to serve, to give, to share our faith, and so much more. And yet we're oftentimes just like the religious leaders. We'd prefer to be the ones in authority and not to submit to Jesus's authority. <laughs> that hurts, doesn't it? We may know intellectually that God's ways are better than our ways, but when the rubber hits the road, when push comes to shove, our actions oftentimes tell us what we really believe. That we believe that our ways are better than God's ways, and at the end of the day, y'all, this is sin and disobeying God. But oftentimes we don't see it. We don't realizing it. And we also know that submitting to Jesus is painfully hard at times because we don't always understand why he's doing or what he's doing, what he's doing. But yet he sees all things. He knows all things. Jesus has discernment and insight and is always, always all good, even when, when it may not seem good. So let me ask, do you believe that? Do you trust that God is good? Well, listen, submitting to Jesus' authority in all areas of our life shows trust. And not submitting to his authority is an expression of unbelief. So let's ask ourselves, in what areas of our life are we struggling to trust Jesus with? What area of our life are we struggling to submit to him in? What is God calling you to do or to stop doing that you're struggling to submit to? In John 6, he tells us to come to him and to feast on him. Are we doing this? Are we daily coming to God and feasting on his word? God calls us to submit our finances to him, our relationships to him, our ambitions to him, our time, our abilities, all to him. God calls us to hand over our entire life, everything to him. But what is it that we're struggling to submit to him in? Because this too is an expression of faithlessness and unbelief. Y'all, doesn't this sting? <laughs> doesn't this hurt? Like these, these three things, as we've seen today, as well as many other, others, are all signs of unbelief and faithlessness. Desiring the gifts over the giver, it's unbelief. Remaining quiet about our faith, it's unbelief. Struggling to submit to Jesus' authority, it's unbelief. Y'all, this is so convicting. And believe me, I know, I've like sat under this all week long and it can seem like a crushing weight because this entire sermon has highlighted unbelief. I mean, how encouraging. Whoa. It's like, gee, thanks, pastor. Am I even a Christian? 
you know? And y'all listen, doubt and unbelief, it's pervasive. It can be crippling. It can be destructive because as I said at the beginning, when trust is lost, the foundation is crumbling. But let me end our time with a word of encouragement. New City Church, as Pastor Sinclair Ferguson said, Jesus brings out the worst in us so that he can then put his best back in us. And for whatever reason, in God's loving providence, doubt and unbelief and faithlessness and pain and hardship, these are all tools in the hands of a loving Father to mold us into his image. God often highlights our doubt and unbelief so that he can then grow us and mature us. You know, God puts us on the surgeon's table and he slowly and lovingly takes a scalpel to our life. And you know what? It really hurts <laughs> like a lot. We bleed and we squirm and we squeal and we ache and we moan in pain and in agony. And it doesn't feel like love because it hurts. It's like, wait a second. I thought this was supposed to be encouraging. And to that, we must remember that Jesus is our loving surgeon. <laughs> because the same scalpel that brings pain is also the same scalpel that brings healing and restoration and life. The same scalpel that sent Jesus to the cross and to die a painful, bloody death on a dark Friday is the same scalpel that takes our sin and wipes us clean and breathes the spirit of life through Resurrection Sunday. Y'all, the crucifixion was painful and agonizing, but after the painful cru crucifixion came the incredible hope of the resurrection where life and hope is found. And in order to get to the joy of the resurrection on Sunday, Jesus had to go through the pain of the crucifixion on Friday, and his followers had to experience grief and sadness and sorrow and doubt and unbelief on Saturday. But yes, Sunday came. Y'all, the disciples on Saturday were likely overwhelmed with doubt and unbelief. But may we not forget that Sunday came. Jesus kept his word and he rose from the dead. And so how can we trust that Jesus will sustain us through our doubt and unbelief as followers of Jesus? Because of his past faithfulness. Church, when we're filled with doubt and unbelief, may we recount God's past faithfulness in our life. And may we not forget that the best picture of God's vast faithfulness is the cross that Jesus died on for you and for me. New City Church, Jesus is our loving surgeon that is in the process of healing and restoring our life and making us into his image. He sees your life. He knows your struggle. He understands your doubts and he sees your faithlessness. But yet in all of that, if you are a Christian with a glimmer of faith the size of a mustard seed, guess what? He's holding you up. He is sustaining you, and he is still working in you because New City Church, God finishes what he starts. If God has saved you, he will sustain you till the end because true saving faith is sustaining faith. If you're a Christian here today and you've put your trust in Jesus with just one small ounce of faith, you will have times and seasons of doubt and unbelief. But in those seasons, guess what? He is holding you. He is sustaining you. He will resurrect you in his perfect timing. He will resurrect your doubt and unbelief and your drooping spirit. Why? Because what God starts in you, God finishes in you. 
The same grace that saves you is the same grace that keeps you. And if you're not a Christian here today, in many ways from today, be warned. Because following Jesus may, come, uh, may not come with a life full of ease and comfort. But you know what? Jesus is calling you today to come to his surgeon's table to restore your life. In the most encouraging way possible, let me tell you, he has a scalpel for you. But it's a loving scalpel that brings hope and healing. And with that loving scalpel comes hope and a promise that he will be by your side forever and into eternity. It is a painful surgeon's table, but let me tell you, he is a good surgeon that loves you and he wants what's best for you. It may hurt. You may at times wonder what you've gotten into, but hear this. Jesus is for you. <laughs> he deeply loves you. And he has an incredible feast for you to feast on. And he will hold you to the end. Let's pray. God, you are good. God, we go through seasons of doubt and unbelief and faithlessness. But yet in all of, it, all of it, God, you sustain us and you hold us and you keep pushing us and growing us in the process. God, as the body of Christ, as the church, may we be a people that have real, sustaining, true, uh, just fiery faith. Because God, you are doing far more than we could ever ask or imagine among us. And we desperately need real faith to sustain us through all the troubles that will come. Father, we love you and we need your help. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.